Thank you, Alan. Wonder if this will fit in my pocket. That's a that's a fancy little fish. But I think this this the largest fish needs to be a little bigger than this one. All right. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter one, and beginning in verse 28. Before we get started, I've got a video though for you. Technicians are doing their best back there. Awesome. Gentlemen, if that's not going to work, I'm going to bypass and just tell you what they're saying. All right? We'll do some lip reading. No, we won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> You've probably seen those videos, right? What the video is just in, is talking, they've been out on the street, they've been asking people the questions about how do they think things are going in our world today. And what it comes down to is not good. We've got all kinds of concerns about injustices in our world, about racism, about perversions, about uh, people in control and trying to do it their way. And, and, and the world in reality is just in chaos. So taking this, this idea of what's happening where people just don't feel safe to let their kids run on the streets anymore because of fear of what might happen, Paul is going to write to the church in Rome who is kind of going through a similar problem in his day and age. It just wasn't a safe place to live. And, and so he's writing to them in, in, his, in his letter here in the book of Romans and he's showing that all Gentiles, that's everybody who's outside of being a Jewish person, everybody who has received just general revelation of God's law, and that they're guilty of breaking God's law, and therefore we are in need of God's grace to redeem us and to set us free. So Paul is going to bring together here in this passage of Scripture a list of sins in verses 29 through 31. In this context, the list means to, not really, it's, it's, it's an overall impression of thing. It doesn't catalog every specific sin that is out there, but we kind of get the gist of what's taking place for those who have, uh, they've never really received a specific verbal or written law code such as Israel had. And yet somehow they know what is right and wrong and they're choosing to do those things that are wrong. And, and, and as a result of that, they will find themselves punished with an eternity in hell. So I think Paul kind of gives us an example or an answer in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see, we have a knowledge of what is good and what is right and what is bad and what is evil, and because that is upon just our natural understanding of things, you see it all across the board in every culture and every society. People know what is right and wrong, and they set up those standards. But yet somehow, 
because we have this ability to know that we're created in the image of God, but we're also created in the image of, of man, Adam, who ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have this innate, natural sense of knowing things that are right and wrong. And we're without excuse, as Paul tells us earlier, because in all creation, it, it points to us about the qualities of God and, and his, his character and His nature and how He wants us to live. So we're without excuse when we do the things that go against it. The sinful actions and the attitudes, they're all around us in our world. And they're really even a part of who we are. Now, we need to understand that although as Paul is specifically speaking to us, a, a, a specific group of people in Rome during his generation, what he says applies to us even to our generation today. That we can take these things and we can see how we relate and, 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 and we can and begin to, to um, put them upon our own lives and look at our own moral instruction of how we're living. Now, I need to preface this statement first off with this. The, the catalogs of sin is not an exhaustive compilation of sin in general, but simply it's a list of characteristics that ultimately found in people who reject Christ and who determine that the knowledge of God is really something they don't want to grasp or be a part of, and so they're going to suppress the truth so that they can do what they want. But I begin with a question. Why is it that men embrace sin so readily. What is it about us that we, we want to jump, jump in and just, just enjoy a life of sin? Paul tells us in Romans 1.28 possibly the reason behind this. He, he says that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When we decide that we want to have nothing to do with God, He then has turned them over to do whatever they want to do, and it goes into the depravity of their thoughts as deep as they want to go. William Sanday, he was a, a British biblical scholar back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and, and in his commentary on Romans, he says this, the degree of God's punishment corresponded exactly to the degree of man's deflection from God. Now, earlier in Romans chapter 1, Paul is introduced the subject of, of mankind deliberately rejecting God's revelation about himself, saying we don't believe in him, doesn't matter that, that it points to him, we want to have nothing to do with God. And so the effects of man rejecting God and their deliberate refusal it further develops their character and the ways in which they live in our world. Last week we talked about the phrase that he said, did not see fit, from the word dakimazo. It suggests the idea of a self-determined choice that, that uh, we don't think things are going to stand up to our test of reasoning. And so we're going to put it aside and so even knowing God really is nothing worthwhile. So who cares if there's a God? I'm going to live and be my way. So what does God do? He gives them over to a depraved or debased mind. Now, when God gave them over, their lives or their minds no longer saw fit to live lives that were beneficial. And so we begin to do things 
that we think benefit us, but in reality, it's destroying us. Verse 32 will indicate to us that these men still have an awareness of God's requirements, but their minds no longer control the men in the behavior pattern, which was harmonious with God's requirements for life. So, they do what ought not to be done. Now, verses 24 to 28, it kind of gives us a descent of how man has fallen. It begins by saying that, that, uh, they, they, that God has turned them over to their impurities. And so they begin doing things that are kind of shady, right? And then it moves further and he gives them over to, great, to degrading passions, which we looked at somewhat last week. And then finally it says that he turns them over to this depraved mind, And so now we can't even reason and think logically because it's all based upon our own passions. Now, in verses 29 through 31, Paul is going to give us a description of the things that ought not to be done. And he lays it out. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive description, but it's a catalog of sins. And a lot of times when I'm reading through scriptures, I just read, 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 and I don't stop and think about it. But I want us to pause today and dig into what do these words mean and how do they really impact us in life now there's a bunch of them so if you're taking notes get ready to write all right here we go this catalog of sin it outlines them in three groups first off there is a group uh, uh, that, that says that they were filled with and then there's a group that he says they are full of and finally he says they are So he lays these out in three different groups. First off, they are filled with unrighteousness. Adikia is the word. It means injustice, and it's often used in court language. All right? It's it's not a specific sin, but it is is an overall and an an overreaching idea that, that conveys why we're doing this is because we have this sinful attitude it 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 deserves condemnation even in a court setting and the biblical use of it also goes right along with the greco-roman usage of it so it's it's the same thing anytime you see this word in the bible it also means that that they are worthy of some kind of a condemnation or a penalty because of how they have acted all right william barclay in his commentary he tells us that unrighteousness is the opposite of justice The Greeks define justice as giving to God and to men their due. And the unrighteous man, he says, is the man who robs both men and God of their rights. And he has so erected an altar to himself in the center of things that he worships himself in exclusion of all things that might be God or other man. He puts himself first. That is his unrighteousness, all right? God's wrath then, which is appropriately applied to sin, is expressed in the loss of relationship and in community. And so when anybody lives for their own means and their own good, relationships begin to break down. And this is all based on their unrighteousness. Now I want you to take note of this. These sins are against other people resulting when men turn on one another and begin to try and exploit one another for their own benefit. The second sin he labels here is evil, ponorea, which means wicked. It carries with it the idea of taking delight and hurting and injuring other people. 
They find joy in striking out to somebody, and, 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 and they, they then live these dangerous and destructive lives themselves. Now, the Greeks use this word, this word evil, to describe a man who is not only bad, but he also wants to make everybody else bad as he is. He's the kind of man who will just drag other people down to his level. Literally, he is what we might call bad to the bone. All right? it's, it's in his core. And throughout Scripture, this word is used primarily to describe Satan and his bad character. But Paul says we become this evil as well when we decide that we're not going to acknowledge and recognize God. A third word he uses for us is covetousness, pleonexia. Other ways it might be translated as avarice or extortion or greedy, their covetousness. Now, it's this insatiable desire to accumulate more and more things in general without regard for the rights and the needs of anybody else. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that this sin really is idolatry and the acquisition of things we begin to worship. So everybody has their mountain of goodies that they want to compile, and they just they love having these possessions. That's this person who is covetous, all right? This kind of desire often leads a man to use unlawful and sometimes violent means to obtain the object of his desire, even at the cost of his own honor, all right? He doesn't care what people think about him. He's going to get it anyway. Sometimes his ambition will cause him to trample over others to get something that he really wants, totally disregarding what it might do to the other person for him to take it. And this guy is covetous. A fourth word that they're filled with is malice. Kahia. It means a depravity, a naughtiness, a vice, a, uh, a, a badness. This is the word that the Greeks often use for a person with a bad character. All right? <clears throat> but then he moves into this next section. He says they're full of envy. Envy, which is phthonos, is ill will, or even we might say jealousy. Is it wrong to be jealous of things, envious of things? All right. If covetousness is the desire towards a specific object or thing, envy is directed specifically toward a person and what they possess or what they have or who they are. All right? and, and so envy is about that other person. It means not just wanting what another person has, but it is also resenting that person because they have it. Right? It's an attitude of ill will and jealousy that leads to division and strife and sometimes to trying to destroy that person as well who gets in your way because they have those things that you do. So we might even murder because we envy, which is the next word that he throws out for us. Murder, phonos, means to kill or really even to slaughter. You're not going to be dainty about this. You're going to be as vicious in your attack to do away with this person as you can. And in Greek society, the word was used in this unlawful killing of another human being with malice and forethought. We call it premeditated 
murder in our language today. All right? So this isn't just going up and killing somebody by accident. This is because of the envy and the other things that have been driving you. You have thought this through and you can't wait to get rid of them. And they do. So it's, it deals with, in, in Greek, it dealt with often they use this word when they talked about assassinations, when they talked about the execution of slaves, when they talked about the gladiators and the amphitheaters, when they talked about the, the, um, uh, the disposing of unwanted babies through abortion or getting rid of your children because you don't want them or they're a hindrance to you. These are all well-known examples of murder in Rome. And Paul says these are the sins that these people are committing, and they're full of these sayings. We ought to remember that, that in the New Testament, it's not just the act of murder, but Jesus even goes further to say it is the attitude that gets you there that is also considered murder. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, he says, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. John then writes in one of his epistles, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, it comes down to the heart of things. Our heart motivates us to do these things. And so as Paul is writing out these these lists of sins that they are living within their society, they have gotten so far down in their hatred of other people and other things that they're willing to go ahead and murder. The next word he uses is strife, eris. It means quarreling, contention, debating, wrangling. You're fighting for things, all right? It always refers to someone who's just got this this quarrelsome attitude. They can't wait to get in an argument with somebody. You know that as soon as they show up, you know, you're going to have a debate. You have to talk about this because they're going to always take the opposing side of whatever it is that you're going to say. They create strife within relationships, They're always contentious. Then he says that they're also full of deceit, dolos. Deceit is treachery. It's cunning. It's fraud. The term literally means it's a trick or a bait for fish. All right? What do we do? We put a little bait on a hook and we cover it, and as soon as that fish gets it, we got him, don't we? All right? He thinks he's getting something good, but in the end, we got him. So, this deceit is trying to trap people to use them for ourselves. And so we give them something false to believe in. Now, the term is used throughout the New Testament to describe deceitful means to trick a person. For example, in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, claims that the chief priests and the scribes, they sought to arrest Jesus, and he uses the word by stealth, which literally is deceit, in order that they could kill him. 
you, you, you've read through those scriptures and you would see that they would come up and they would ask him a question, right? You know, trying to trick him, trying to bait him, trying to get him caught on something. And then somehow he always had the ability to turn the table and they were the ones who got hooked. There's always an ulterior motive and it's the use of devious and underhanded methods in order to get what it is that we want. That's deceit. We'll lie to you in order that I can do whatever I want. You know, and unfortunately, we learn that as children, don't we? We learn to tell you one thing. I'm going over to Billy's house. Yeah, okay, you're going to Billy's house? Okay, well, yeah, I'm going to Billy's house. Then I'm going someplace else. (laughs) All right? And the smart parent will call Billy's house. Is John still there? All right? We just deceive a little bit to get what it is that we want all right, that's, that's where we are. And he says these people have become so full of these types of character traits in their life because it's all about them. There's always these ulterior motives. The last one that they're full of is this maliciousness, kakoethia, which means bad character or mischievousness. All right? When you're that mischievous person, everybody knows about. It's this state of mind which leads to one to misinterpret words. All right, but let's change it now. It's not that, that he is, in his maliciousness, the one doing this, but he is looking at you as if you can't be trusted in what you're saying. And so they start putting words in your mouth, all right, They start thinking that that you have the worst motives and intentions. Why? Because they do. We can't trust anybody. They think there's always a hook, right? And so because they can't trust you, they're going to have to deceive you. That's, That's where they are. So the Roman world and its society has moved itself because they've chosen not to acknowledge God and not to live by His standards and not to follow in with His laws that are by nature written upon our hearts, we become destructive. Finally, he says, as a list of 12, they are gossips. It's It's a whisperer. Secret calumniator. All right, these are great words, aren't they? All right, this, is, you know, this, this Greek word, this is where we get our little, psst, let me tell you something. All right, psst. All right, so this, this is where it comes from. It's a sin that describes here is that it is secretly conveying information in a very sly manner by hints and innuendos that are detrimental to the name of somebody else and to their welfare secretly. I didn't say that. Who told you I would have said that? I didn't say that. But yet they're, they're behind the scenes doing this. But finally they forget about being behind the scenes and they just turn into this slanderous person, which is next, katalalos, which means you're, you're talkative against. You're a backbiter. All right? You're someone who's going to destroy them. It doesn't matter whether it's in the, in the quiet and the secret or it's open and public and everybody knows that you're going to speak a lie about that person and you're going to stab them in this back. That's who they really are. And, 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 and so this, this slanderous person, you just want to destroy them. And it doesn't matter if people 
catch on that you're telling a lie. You don't care. Because now you've put doubt in the mind of somebody else about someone else. Ultimately, he says, they are haters of God. Theostages. They're impious. They are hateful to God. Word really describes a man who hates God because he knows that he is defying God and God is going to eventually have to judge him. To him, God is a barrier between him and his pleasure. And so he gladly is going to eliminate God if he could so that there would be no barrier to getting it what it is that he wants. He hates God for setting up standards. Sometimes I think we live in that kind of world today, don't you? People hate God because he has expectations on us, how we should live. He says they're insolent, ubristes. means they're despiteful, they're injurious, they're violent, they're a maltreater. These are the people that, that Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. We would translate this as a bully. That's who really they are, these insolent people. They're just, they're just the bully. The bully behaves with insulting and humiliating arrogance because they think they're better than somebody else, so they pick on them because that other person isn't powerful enough to retaliate. So I'm going to get your lunch money. I'm going to pick on you. I'm going to call you names. Moses Lord, in his commentary on Romans, says this. He says, persons are insolent when in their haughtiness they look down upon others with contempt and so treat them and speak to them as to mortify them and wound their feelings. We have children today who are so insolent that other kids are being bullied to the extent that they take their own lives. I wonder if that was going on in Rome in Paul's day. People were bullying each other so much that the one being bullied, just the only way of escape is to end it all. You see, this insolent person is not so much that they hurt for the sake of resent or revenge, but simply because they get pleasure and hurting somebody else. And they laugh about it. And they get others to join in with them in laughter on picking on somebody else. Why? Because he says they're haughty. Uperifenos. Which means that they're arrogant, proud, conspicuous, appearing above others. In Mary's song, when she sings of this song, when she discovers that she's going to have the baby Jesus, in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, she makes this statement about this type of person. She, she praises God for scattering those abroad who are proud in thoughts of their hearts. James and Peter they quote Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 in, in a couple of their letters where it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That proud, the haughty. If you're going to be haughty, you're proud in life. God's going to become your enemy. All right? But we don't stop there. We become very boastful, don't we? 
Alazon. We're a braggart. We're an arrogant person. All right? This is somebody who goes beyond the truth to impress somebody else. All right? they, they fudge a little bit, or sometimes a lot, as to who they are so that other people will like them. All right? And they, they build themselves up greater than what they really are, and they try to pull it off. And unfortunately, a lot of times they do pull it off. All right? In present-day terms, this person is what we would call a con man. I mean, you remember the snake oil salesman, don't you, from the old times? They would, they would come up and they would tell you, I've got this elixir which is going to heal all things. It's going to be the cure for all your ailments and your injuries, and all you need to do is take this. This is the best stuff out there. And they're going to con you so that you buy into whatever it is that they're selling. You think of the, the fraudulent land schemes that are going on. I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Right? I don't have any use for it anymore since I don't live there, right? These are the people that they appeal to uh, for charities that don't even exist. Why? Because they want something from you. You think of the cheap products that are being sold today with an exorbitant value placed upon it, right? You think you're buying a real Gucci, right? And in reality, it's a knockoff, right? You think you're getting a Rolex, but it's not even a Timex, Right? But, they, but they've built it up, and, and it looks good. And they do this about themselves. They put themselves in this position where they see themselves as mighty and great, and they want you to acknowledge that, and they're going to sell you something. You see, it goes beyond this to this aspect of, they, he says, they even become inventors of evil. Uferates kokos. They, they, they contrive and they discover new ways to be bad, all right? They're always thinking, outside the box, what can I do? How can I get away with it? William Barclay says that this phrase, inventors of evil, describes a man who is not content with the usual ordinary ways of sinning, but he seeks some new thrill in some new sin, he wants to find something new that nobody's ever done and how awful it could be, right? And the more debased in our mind we become, the lower we go in our sin. You see, this individual, this inventor of evil, maybe, maybe they, a new invention comes along. Let's say it's the computer and somehow Al Gore creates the internet for us to use. And then we can, oh, you got that, did you? <laughs> then we discover that this is quite a powerful tool and we can use this thing to do wonderful things, you know, but then there's the dark web, isn't there? Because we have discovered new ways to use it in the depths of evil as well. I mean, you get these hackers that are using it all the time, and they're trying to suck you in. I mean, I get emails. I get, I get texts from people. I have no idea, but we're our friends, you know? And they need money because now they're in trouble over in, in South Africa. Uh, you know, it's all these wonderful ways of trying to figure out how they can scam us. You know, if, if there's an, an old scheme has been declared illegal by our government, they're going to find another way to create a new scheme just outside that box so they can get away with it, looking for loopholes 
Aren't we always doing that? What can I get away with? But he says it probably begins right here with this next statement, that they're disobedient to their parents. That literally means they're unpersuadable. Or how's this for a synonymous verb? Contumacious. You ever heard that one? Me either. <laughs> but it's this, the disobedience. All right? All right? At, at first sight, to see this, this common attitude that we got people who are always disobedient to parents. I mean, my kids were disobedient to me. I was disobedient to mine. You were probably disobedient to yours, and yours will be if they have not yet been disobedient to you. This is just a common thing. Everybody, you know, we, we want to do what we want to do, Right? And so we manipulate to get there. When children do not show their parents honor and respect, when they don't listen to their parents, when, when they don't provide for their parents in their old age, the society becomes a problem. We're really in trouble. I mean, perhaps no other sin included in this list indicates more clearly the great depths to which we will go in our sin and in which the people in Rome had already fallen, it just completely wrecked their humanity. And we're doing the same thing today. Disobedience to those who are closest to us is destructive in our society. So we become foolish, a sinitas which is that idea of being senseless, unintelligent, without understanding. What, whatever it is that, that they leave undone is not determined by their mental faculties, all right, or, or their intelligence or their insight or their critical thinking. What it's really describing here is someone who refuses to use his own God-given mind to make common sense. Last week we talked about this, and it was really the best translation possibly for this could be someone who's just simply stupid. How could you do such a thing? All right? It's not just foolish. This is pure stupidity. They know that they can use their mind for something else, but they're not going to do it. They're just going to be foolish in their lifestyle. He says, then they move into this aspect of faithlessness, a synthetos which means that they are, they're unreliable, they're disloyal, they're dishonest, they're untrustworthy, they're treacherous, they are covenant breakers. Matter of fact, they're just, this just describes hedonism in its full. Men make contracts and bargains because it benefits their self-interests, all right? And, and, and they then unscrupulously ignore the promises that they make because they've already gotten what they want. I, this is the type of person who goes to a, a, an auto dealership and he buys a car on loan and then he determines, I'm not going to pay that loan back. And he's going to find ways of getting away with it. We're not going to keep our promises. It, it tends to shade off into areas that we label as graft and corruption. See, men are entrusted with certain new responsibilities of public trust. And when they think when no one's looking, they're going to subvert those finances for their own interests. 
They're corrupt. They're faithless. You can't count on them. They're untrustworthy. This is a person that you don't want to give the keys to your house. Because you don't know what will be there when you come back. All right? What a society. But do you see where our society is moving the same direction? When we can't trust our kids to walk down the street by themselves. As a child, I remember walking down the street in St. Louis when I was five-year-old, going to the grocery store by myself. Mom had given me money. I went in and made change and took the stuff back home. Not a problem. Until a few people moved in across the street and uh, violence started really taking place and then we left there and moved out here faithless he says they're heartless people astorgios it, it means unfeeling hard-hearted without any ability to have natural affection these people are unloving that's what it comes down to of the several Greek words for love, storge is the one that is reserved for the love that you have for your family. It's a special relationship that they have if, if you're a members of a family. However, this heartless, this astorgos, this heartless love creates child abuse spousal abuse it, it, it is the direct result of the lack of such love and as the it, it causes people to abandon their wives and their children it's the result of love that that eventually we might even res, reserve this love or this lack of love for the reason why we get rid of our kids even before they're born finally he says they're ruthless Analemon, ruthless, unmerciful, pitiless, callous, unfeeling towards others. This person simply does not care when others are in need or are suffering. Jesus told a story about a man who'd been beaten up by some robbers on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They left him there. Uh, stole everything from him, even his clothes, left him naked and dying. And a priest walks by, and a Pharisee walks by. Just kind of look at him, and uh, they don't care. And we think, how could somebody do that? And then somebody who should have been the enemy stops and helps. Ruthless. Someone who's ruthless or unmerciful shows no pity towards others, even though they may be poor, crippled, handicapped, or, 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 or helpless. Human life, to them, then, is considered cheap. What's it matter if we kill a few thousand people, a few million people? Our planet's getting overpopulated anyway, right? Who cares? When I was in Ukraine, and you may be able to testify this because you've spent some time there, I was working in establishing a ministry in a hospital, 
people were coming in to get free surgeries from a doctor friend of mine who was doing hip and knee replacement. This was something new under the Russian-controlled states in the past. They just didn't. If you had bad hips or bad knees and you couldn't walk, then you just, if you couldn't contribute to society, they wouldn't contribute to you. All right? This was communism in its finest. So, once you could no longer work and you couldn't benefit, then they wouldn't even give you food. All right? And a lot of people would do everything they could to even crawl to work to make sure that they would be taken care of. This ruthless type of personality is the kind of person that if you can't contribute to me, then I have no need for you. See, because it's all about me. It's fitting, I think it's interesting, that that in an epistle such as Romans, where we find Paul is stressing God's mercy and His grace throughout it, it lists in this list of sins this one of this merciless attitude. For those who will not show mercy, God is doing everything He can to give them mercy. It's a terrible list of sins, but it's the mark of a civilization that's nearing its collapse. And the growing spirit of contemptuous and arrogant disregard for other human beings, in one word, it describes a desire to exploit others for my own benefit. Godlessness eventually brings us to a place where these things are evident in society. And I look at America. And we're trying to remove God from America. And we see these sins becoming the character of America. That term depraved mind literally means an unacceptable mind. A mind that cannot be lived with, that simply will not fit into any kind of civilization or culture or society. All right, A depraved mind destroys, it tears and fragments everything that it touches. And God has turned the Romans over to a depraved mind. And I'm wondering if he has turned the Americans over to a depraved mind as well. Probably the most vivid demonstration and documentation of this is in uh, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, where he talks about the Russian treatment of people and what he had to go through the senseless cruelty but you see we in this western world think we're escaping that but we're not I mean every day our newspapers report the skyrocketing rise of senseless violence vandalisms vicious unprovoked attacks on innocent children and people who are often helpless. The rise in child abuse in the system in America, in our society. I mean, it culminates, and Paul makes very clear here in verse 32, this last statement here. It's, It's this callous disregard when he says, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, 
but they give approval to those who practice them. Knowing that harm is coming from their wickedness, nevertheless, they attempt to spread it more widely, just to destroy life itself. It invades the fields of education. It dominates our media. They, they speak for legal stack, status for their wickedness, and they defy all attempts at any kind of control. And, and as we can well recognize, I think this is what's going on for us today. I think all of these sins that Paul lays out here, we can identify in our culture today. So Paul is tracing the deepening darkness of man and his generation. But yet, they didn't get rid of it. Now, while this is quite possibly an honest record, it's also clear that God does not turn his back on these people. Because Paul's going to lay that out in the rest of his book. Right? We know that God despises these attitudes. And that his contempt for them is going to have to be relieved by his wrath. But he's at work trying to make a resolution to all of this. Trying to fix things for us so that we don't have to live in this manner. But it still begs me a question. Why does God give a civilization over this kind of thing? I think sometimes it's not until we're really in the darkness of our sin that we're willing to even want the light. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. John tells us we're walking in darkness when we're walking in sin. But Jesus is the light, and we need to walk in that light. See, and in the first century, mankind had sunk into the darkness of despair. Idolatry had penetrated the whole world. It was everywhere. It was in every nation. It was in every community. Men had turned from the true God and were worshiping those things that they had made that were insignificant in power. Matter of fact, hopelessness and absolute despair kind of, kind of weighed like a heavy wet blanket on all of mankind. Uh, that's really what it comes down to. And then we just seems like we just can't get it off of us. But in that hour in the darkness of night over the skies of Bethlehem, angels spoke. And light shone. And hope was renewed. And, and a child was born that was going to bring life in the midst of death. That was going to bring hope when despair was all that was there. Life that was going to be something so unique. And all they had to do, this, this aspect of joy and peace and gladness that was going to come there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem long ago. And yet, He can still be born in our hearts today if we will put our faith and trust in Him. I mean, see, this is good news. 
This is the gospel that Paul talked about earlier that he's not ashamed of because it brings salvation to anyone who believes. Whether they be Jew or, or Gentile, it doesn't matter. And in this decaying world in which we live, we can see again the glory of this truth because he will deliver us from our sin. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 The angel said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. We live in a wicked world. But wickedness doesn't win. Jesus does. I can see some of those sins creeping at my life as well. Because by nature, that's who we are. Our, our fallen nature of flesh just seeks its own self-gratification. But the Spirit of God in us seeks the benefit of others. Obedience to Christ. That's the choice we get to make. We don't have to turn into a society that is so depraved and debased that it is destroying itself. We can become a society that is building, that is growing, that is expounding in the love that God has given us. What society do you want to live in? You've got to create it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that even though we have a tendency to be just like the Romans, that by our nature we just want to not acknowledge who you are and suppress the truth and do things our own way for what we perceive to be beneficial, and yet we're destroying things. But then there's Jesus, and we are so grateful that you sent him into this world to give us hope, to give us life, to give us your mercy and grace and forgiveness, to redeem us and, and to call us to be your own and, and, and to instill within us your spirit that will revolutionize how we live, that we no longer live by the flesh, but we live by your spirit, and we do things according to your will rather than our own. Father, help us to change our community. That it becomes a community of faith that lives for your glory. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.